one of my best friends called you okay let me let me just get this straight let's recap you grow up first person in your family to go to college you go to NYU, amazing graduate you go to law school pass the new york bar and the connecticut bar sworn in you're on partnership track at a major new york city law firm you are going to quit that you're going to move to la you've never been west of chicago you're going to go to la and write scripts you've never written a script before what kind of fucking stupid plan is this? <laughs> if you've got something, let it rip. I'm never going to do this again. Everybody grapples with this idea that you're really a fraud. Like, I'm alive. And that's when it clicked with me. I thought, these are not superheroes. These are just men that can do super things. This is Matt Del Negro, and you are listening to the new Stripped Down 10,000 No's. All right, you are in for a treat today. I would say there is a very good chance that in some way, shape, or form, you will be talking about this episode with your friends, with strangers maybe, and I'm not saying that because of me, I am saying that because of today's guest. He is just an amazing human, a huge talent, uh, Terrence Winter. He wrote for The Sopranos, that's where I know him from, way back, early 2000s. He created Boardwalk Empire. He uh, wrote The Wolf of Wall Street. He was nominated for an Academy Award for that. Um, not to take anything away from his work, but his story of how he got to Hollywood, how he got to where he is, is insane, and you're gonna hear it. And. I want to tell you the story about this particular episode and this interview. This took place, I want to say it was, we're now, it's the top of 2024. I believe we recorded this in 2021, believe it or not. It was before we moved back from LA. I interviewed Terry and I interviewed Michael Imperioli. That'll come later on in the spring. Um, and I never put them out because we paused the podcast when I moved, never put it out. But this conversation is ridiculous. Um, I don't want to hype it too much, but I feel like I can't overhype it because his story is so cool. Coming from Brooklyn and going to the heights that he's gone to in this business, you're going to hear he's just such a normal, down-to-earth, grounded dude. He is extremely hardworking, and you'll you'll hear just completely driven how he got there. Honestly, it, it's one of the craziest stories, and I've had a lot of people on this show, and I think this could be the best, like, rags-to-riches story that, that I can remember. Um, I debated with trying to edit it, make it sound smoother, and I, I kind of feel, and I hope you agree with me, that it's best left in its raw form. At one point, his wife sticks her head into his office. Uh, those of you watching on YouTube will see it. Um, those of you hearing will just hear it. Uh, his dog starts barking. I kind of want to just leave it in so that you can just hear the rawness of the conversation, how real he is, because I think it relates to how real his story is. And I think it maybe is more inspiring that way so that if you're watching this or listening to this at home and you're feeling like, oh man, I was brought up in, you know, whatever your circumstances are, maybe they're really rough and you think there's nowhere for a, a person like me to make it in Hollywood. 
Terry's story, Terrence officially, but Terry is what people call him. His story is, is, it's so inspiring. It is so inspiring. Um, and it is also a testament to work ethic. He has tons of talent and he, you know, it, it's easy to lose that in, in these conversations and think, oh, well, if I just do that, I could do it as well. I don't know. He has a lot of talent, but his work ethic is his superpower. You'll hear him say that. I can't wait for you to hear this. I hope you dig the fact that we're leaving it raw. Maybe I'll cut out a little bit of, you know, some really bad moments where it was really raw. But for the most part, here it is, my conversation from 2021 with Terrence Winter. By the way, since having this conversation, he also was the showrunner on the first season of Tulsa Kings on Paramount Plus with Sylvester Stallone. I love that show. He has since left, I believe, for creative differences, and he's on to something else. But he's just, everywhere he goes, he's got this Midas touch. Here he is, Terrence Winter. What we do here is go back, 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 back. Because before I did it, I was like, oh, let me just see the gist of, of this. Yeah. And I was like, it was really cool. And it was also like, oh, I'm not that special. Everybody has a great Soprano story. <laughs> like it's because I always think it was such a huge thing for me, but it's like it was such a huge thing for everybody. Oh, I mean, I remember the day, uh, you know, I got the call that I got the job. It was like, you know, I, I the greatest life changing, you know, obviously career changing, but ultimately completely life changing. It was great. And, uh, you know, I always tell people too. you know, not just because the show was such a massive hit. It was the greatest work experience I ever had. Uh, it was a magic period of time where it was just, uh, you know, six or seven years of just bliss going to work every day with people I loved and creating something that other people loved and had so much fun. And it was just great. And I, I've said this many times, but anything I ever do in the future, no matter how good it is, I will always compare it to that. You know, it's still not as good as my time on Sopranos. What, you know, and, and I've done great stuff that I've been really proud of, but th that was just a golden period of time. It was just, it was just great. So amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's cool. It's like, it, I didn't know your story. Um, and the, so the way this came about, it, it was just, uh, I had Steve on this show after doing Talking Sopranos. And at the end he goes, you gotta have Terry Winter on the show. I was like, well, <laughs> yeah, man. I'm like, I will, but if, if he'll do it. And so he, I said, listen, I don't want you to reach out to him until I've done the work. Let me, let me go listen to it. Right. And, and hear what you're talking about. And I heard your story, which I'd love to get into today. And sure. I was blown away because, you know, you don't realize well, I was so just so green on Sopranos that I just wanted to get my job done and like kind of I, I was not trying to call too much attention. I wasn't thinking about you be ever feeling like an outsider. And then I hear your story and I'm like, it, what blows me away, you, blows me away is that you are you know, now anybody I mention your name to, they're like, great writer, great writer. You're the elite of the elite. Oh, thank you. And, but you started as a, more of an outsider than anybody, I think. Totally. Yeah. I didn't know, I didn't know anything about this business. I mean, I started out uh, like every other kid, you know, in front of a TV set being, you know, as a huge fan, uh, vaguely aware that somebody must be writing this stuff and, and producing it. Uh, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn, uh, you know, in the 
you know, I was born in 1960, so 60s and 70s. So I literally was a, a child of TV. So, I mean, my ritual was you know, I come home from school every day. And uh, thank God in, in New York City, in the tri-state area, we had WPIX, which yeah. was the local station that re-ran the hell out of every old classic sitcom. So this, you know, unbeknownst to me, uh, was graduate school. You know, uh, Gilligan's Island, The Monsters, The Addams Family, F Troop, McHale's Navy, The Bowery Boys, on and on and on. And it's funny, I say like now, you know, had I known at the time, you know, whenever my mother would say, cut, turn the TV off and do your homework. I was, this is homework. This is actually going to pay for my house. I, you know, my knowledge of story structure and jokes structure and setup and payoff. And that's literally, you know, obviously that's what I took away from it, you know, by osmosis. But yeah, I mean, you know, growing up on the East Coast at that time, you know, there was virtually no TV or film production. So the idea of growing up to be in this business was completely alien to the point that you wouldn't even say it to your friends in fear of being goofed on or, or, or worse. Oh, you're going to be an actor. You're going to be a writer. Listen to this asshole. Really? You're going to go to Hollywood. It sounded ludicrous. It's, it sounded ludicrous well into my teens and 20s, even, even when we kind of, you know, had the balls to once in a while dip our toe in the water of talking about, you know, wow, wouldn't it be? And of course, we all, you know, grew up, you know, worshiping, you know, Scorsese and De Niro and the, the, the typical, you know, East Coast guy movies that I'm sure you love, too, and, you know, went to see those things. But again, the idea of, oh, I want to do that was just not even in my radar at that point. My big ambition as a kid was I wanted to be rich. Uh, I grew up one of five kids, uh, single mom. My dad passed away when I was seven. My mom went to work, you know, was a receptionist. And it was basically a free for all, every man for himself at that point. And, uh, you know, we lived in a tiny little house that was, you know, honestly, frankly, the worst house on the block because my mom was never home to clean it. And it was, I was embarrassed of it. Uh, and I, I knew, you know, I wanted to change my life. And actually, it's funny, one of the blessings, uh, I, I got a job when I was 13 as the delivery boy for a butcher shop that happened to be owned by Paul Castellano, who's the head of the Gambino family. He, Castellano in his earlier life was a butcher, and he owned a chain of butcher, butcher shops called CNS Meat Market, Castellano and Sons Meat Market. I was the delivery boy for the one in our neighborhood. So not only did I get a little, you know, rubbing elbows with the types of people you met on the Sopranos, one of the things that job allowed me to do was to go into other people's homes. I got to deliver meat and see how other people lived. And what I realized very quickly is that my house sucked. <laughs> it's like, holy shit, these people have art on the wall and there are books everywhere and pictures. And I was like, it smells nice in here. And then I go home to my shitty little house and, uh, you know, I'd be like, oh, my, I got it. So very early on, I was like very motivated. Like, how do I get from here to there? And the problem was I had no idea. I literally went to a vocational high school where I studied to be an auto mechanic. It was William E. Grady High School. Actually, Tony Sirico, who played Paulie Walnuts, he went to this high school. He was kicked out of this high school. And I was like, and I remember thinking, how bad do you have to be to get kicked out of this fucking place? I mean, because this was like practically a prison. It was just all boys, just testosterone. And you literally majored in carpentry, electrical, auto repair, air conditioning. Those are your four choices. I was in the auto department. So my high school years were eight in the morning till noon. I was in an auto garage. And then we had lunch and then academics in the afternoon. And when I say academics, I mean <laughs> the most basic shit 
and, and I'm going to tell people don't believe this because the God's honest truth. In my senior year of high school English, we read Death of a Salesman from September until June. That was high school senior English, one play for nine months. This was the New York City school system in 1978. It was like, you guys are just going to go work and change oil. It doesn't matter. Just go, go. So I was, I literally did not crack a book. Uh, I love to read. I, I read on my own. I was really curious and stuff. And again, my ambition though was I just wanted to be rich. I knew I wasn't going to be an auto mechanic by that point, but all my friends went there and I was like, all right, you know, I'm just going along. But what I did, I transitioned out of the butcher shop job into the delicatessen business. <clears throat> and I worked my ass off. I, 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 during high school, I had the butcher shop job. I waxed cars on the weekend. Actually, I'm going to show you something. This is my business card from when I'm 15. Oh, it's wow. Terry Winter cars compounded and waxed. That's what I did on the weekend. And as I did my other card, this is when I became an attorney years later on the other side. Oh, uh, man, that is... So, yeah, I did that. And I was also a waiter, uh, despite having gone to Catholic school, I was a waiter at a local synagogue. So I did this. I worked seven days a week. I was hustling, hustling, hustling. So I worked in the deli. So when I, by the time I got out of high school, my, my ambition was I didn't never plan to go to college at all. Uh, I was going to be in the delicatessen business. And the two guys I worked with were older than me. They were in their 30s. I was at this point now 19. And they approached me. They said, we want to buy another deli I, and we want you to manage it. <laughs> I have two yappy dogs here. Skittles. This is a very important podcast. <laughs> We're he keeping it real here. He know? doesn't give a shit. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, they said they want me to manage it. I said, great, I'd love to manage it, but I want to be your partner. I will invest the you know, money I saved all these years, and I'm going to be a, a one-third partner. So I did. Long story short, after about a year and a half, they basically screwed me over, and I sold back my ownership to them. So now I'm 19. I'm living alone. Uh, I moved out right after high school. I had my own apartment and near King's Plaza in Brooklyn, if you're familiar with the area. Uh, a basement apartment with orange shag carpeting and pa wood panels, a shithole. And I remember waking up one morning, it was the winter of 1980. And I was 19. Uh, and I woke up and it occurred to me that if I didn't do something to change my circumstance, I theoretically would be living in this apartment for the rest of my life. The whole fantasy of, oh, you want to be rich, you want to be that. It's like, okay, great. Well, it's all on you now. This is where you live. There's no mommy, there's no refrigerator with food. This, this is your life. What are you going to do? And it was like somebody took electrical charges those paddles and boom and i was like okay i gotta figure this out so i remember you know like i said i like to read a lot of different stuff there was a quote by benjamin franklin and it sounds goofy but it's true it, the quote is pour thy purse into thy head and no man can ever take it from you so i had just been fucked over in business so basically is get an education no one will ever steal your education and i said i guess i gotta go to college so the problem was i you know had had having come out of autom automotive high school i'd never taken the sats i honestly didn't know where the colleges were i didn't know go here go there i had no, no college prep whatsoever i was in new in the city i took the subway i was in greenwich village walking around and i stumble on the campus of new york university and i, I remember hearing oh th this is supposed to be a good school so i said oh great i'll go here 
That was the extent <laughs> of my college research. And I swear, this sounds like I'm a complete rube. And I was, but I was also very street smart. So I go into the office and I say, can I get a brochure? So I start thumbing through the brochure at NYU. And it becomes very clear that with my vast knowledge of death of a salesman, I am not getting into NYU. <laughs> and when I'm looking at it, I like, there's no way I'm getting in here. But then I thought, you know what? <clears throat> this is where the street smarts come in. I thought, if I pick a major that no one else wants, maybe I'll just eliminate my competition. So in 1980 at NYU, they offered a major in medieval religion. And I was like, this is for me. I'm going to <laughs> So I put in an application. I want to study medieval religion. So I mean, let me see what happens. So I get a call from some guy. He goes, so I got your application in front of me. Um, it's very interesting. So you have an auto mechanic license. You live in Brooklyn. And you want to study medieval religion. How did that happen? I said, well, you know, I've always been a big fan of, of uh, the Knights of the Round Table. <laughs> An evil thing I, I know, I knew. And, uh, and I said, I'm also very religious, which is not, not true either. He says, uh, that's, that's really interesting. Okay, well, you'll hear from us. So I get, I get a letter in the mail. Skittles, food. Excuse, I'm sorry, guys. This is really keeping me. Honey, I'm, I'm in the middle of the podcast. Do you hold them? Thank you. Sorry, I'm so sorry. No, buddy. no. A ten thousand nose was there when when Terry Winter was robbed by, and his dogs had to come to the rescue. That's and I'm still I'm... in my pajamas. <laughs> got to see the reality of that too. This is it. Yeah. Anyway, so um, I, I get a call in and I get a letter. Uh, it says you're accepted to NYU. Uh, conditionally, I had to take a foreign language, which I never had in high school because I had auto mechanics, and I had to take remedial math because I was terrible at math. I was like, great, otherwise I'm accepted at NYU. So two problems. I had no money. I'm literally on my arm, but I'm an independent student. And uh, and the other one is I'm I'm an old man. I'm I'm 19 at this point. No, everybody else is 17. And I go there and I'm like, fuck, all these kids like online to uh to to uh register and they're whipping out daddy's checkbook and, and I'm like literally where's the financial aid office and I just basically said here's the deal this is it either going to work or it's not going to work if it works I'm going to get an education I'm going to make a lot of money and I'll pay the loans back if it doesn't work what are they going to put me in student loan jail I mean I, what, what are they going to do to me I'm, yeah. I, I'll pay or I can't pay it's one or the other and I'm going to bet on myself so I was like okay I just signed my life away so the thing too about being 19 and feeling so old was that everybody um, was going to get out of there in four years. And I was like, okay, if I, I, if I only go part-time because I have to work, I'm, I'm going to be 30 by the time I get out of here. I said, bullshit. I'm getting out of here in four years, no matter what I have to do. So I went to school full-time and I worked full-time at night. And when I worked full-time at night, I was a cab driver. This is in New York City in 1981. Uh, like Very different New York. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. I was a hospital security guard in an emergency room on the midnight to eight shift. I was the guy who delivered the New York Times in the middle of the night, seven days a week, 400 newspapers to different doors. My last two years in college, I was the midnight to eight doorman on a building on the Upper East Side where Robert Eiler lived. Robert Eiler was a baby. He hadn't been born yet. And I was working in the building he would come to live in. I was the midnight to eight guy. And it was the greatest job because I just... Basically, when I signed up for the job, uh, they said, can you stay awake between midnight and eight in the morning? I was like, yeah, I think so. They said, all right, great. 
Uh, there's a baseball bat under the desk. If anybody gives you a hard time, just, you know, you know what to do. It's like, okay, great. So <laughs> that was the job. It was 92nd and 3rd in the mid-80s, which was still very, very sketchy up there. Yeah. But it was the great thing about it was it was a union job. It was a decent amount of money. And uh, I got to just sit there all night. And I literally didn't see anybody for, for eight hours. So I got to read all the books. I had a portable typewriter. This is like, you know, a million, 40 years ago. Uh, and I did all my schoolwork. And so I basically went to school during the day and, and worked at night. The, the other thing, and this is, this is going to sound incredibly naive, but it's also true. I didn't know that NYU, which as a lot of your viewers probably know, is one of the preeminent film and TV schools in the world. I didn't know NYU taught film and television. I didn't know that was a choice. I was accepted into the liberal arts college, which was called Washington Square University because I applied as a medieval religion major. So within the framework of that school, I could take English, history, medieval religion, journalism, but, but film and TV was a different department. I didn't know, and again, this is my background and my naivete, I didn't know NYU had a law school and a medical school and a business school and a film school and a dental school. I was just like, oh, this is the college. So I just thought, oh, I could just take these courses, not knowing I could take courses in any of those other uh, fields. So um, I did have a high school teacher who used to make us write short stories on Fridays. And one day she called me after school, after class, she said, can you stay for a minute? And she said, I just want to tell you, you're a really talented writer. You should think about going to college. And this was like, I was a sophomore or junior in high school. I went, oh, that's really nice. Thank you. But now I'm going into the deli business. She's like, all right, great. But anyway, just, just so you know, you're very talented. So it was the first time an adult ever told me I was good at writing and then filed it away. So in college, I was like, you know, I heard I was good at writing. Maybe I'll take journalism. So I did, and I loved it, and I, and I did really well at it. So working, doing the journalism stuff, doorman at night, uh, at one point during my career, I get called into the dean of NYU, like in my second year, he goes, do you know you haven't taken one medieval religion class yet? <laughs> I was like, Shocking. oh yeah, I didn't know how to change my major. And he's like, okay, so I changed my major to journalism. And then even journalism was like, again, my ambition was, I wanted to be rich. Um, I used to wander around King's Plaza, the shopping mall. Uh, they had a Macy's. And, I, and to motivate myself, I used to walk through the Macy's furniture department. And again, I had this shitty little, I, when I grew up, I, I lived in an eight by 10 bedroom that I shared with my brother and my grandmother. So it was literally me, my brother, and my grandmother in an eight by 10 room with a bunk bed. So to get pumped up, I would walk through the Macy's furniture department and look at all this fancy shit. And they had Japanese furniture. And this is the seventies. I'm like, I'm going to get a water bed and I'm going to have that. I'm going to have that. And that would get me like, yeah, well, this is what I'm working for. And I got, I got really motivated. So, um, so journalism didn't, didn't to me again, equate with money. You know, somebody should have told me you know, how much Dan Rather makes, but I, I had no idea but so I said, you know, the two jobs I know that make a lot of money were doctor and lawyer. So doctor was out, but I thought I'm going to go to law school. So I double majored in political science, which is a good political, uh, a good framework for law and, uh, and journalism. So again, slogging my way through, slogging my way through, comes time to get uh, apply to law school. I asked my journalism instructor to one of them to write me a recommendation. And he writes me this glowing recommendation for law school. And he gives it to me and in a manila envelope. And he says, the, the recommendation is in there. He says, but there's another letter in there for you personally. So I take it home, I open it. And that letter says, please don't go to law school. Please be a writer. 
And I was like, holy, this is the second time I have a grown up who I respect telling me I'm, I'm a good writer. I should be a writer. And I went, right, let me look into this. So I look into it and, and it turns out the starting salary for a job at the Associated Press pays half of what I make as a doorman. Like, <laughs> what the fuck is this? You know, the other thing is my friends who are auto mechanics are making like $80,000 a year. They think I'm out of my mind. Like you, you were wasting your money. I'm already like 50 grand in the whole student loans. This is in 1982, which was like, uh, you know, a million, millions of dollars. Yeah. And I, I have literally a job offer that pays half of what I make as a doorman. So I said, well, fuck it. I have to go to law school. This is the only way through. So I go to law school, night school, four years of that. I worked for Merrill Lynch during the day. Uh, in 1987, I was actually on the floor, the, the trading floor at Merrill Lynch when the stock market crashed in 1987. Unbeknownst to me, a quarter mile away, a guy named Jordan Belfort, who later on to become the Wolf of Wall Street, was at his first day on his job as a stockbroker, literally wow. a quarter mile away from where I was, not knowing our paths were about to converge. So the stock market crashes. I was supposed to have stayed on at Merrill Lynch as an attorney. They, it was a hiring freeze. I ended up graduating from law school the following June and then worked, went to work for a massive law firm. Uh, it was called Wilson, Elser, Moskowitz, Edelman, and Dicker. 300 attorneys, insurance firm. I worked in the business department. So I passed the bar exam. I get sworn in. I get hired at this big law firm. I'm making a really great amount of money. I'm living in Manhattan. I have my own office. I have my own secretary, as they called them back then. I have a big diploma written in Latin that I don't even know what it says, but it, it basically says, I'm smart. Look, mom. <laughs> but the other thing, too, and this is my mother, God rest her soul, you know, we we suffered from the Irish Catholic, you know, um, mentality of like, who do you think you are? Oh, big shot going to college. You know, it's like, basically, I, there's a there's a there's a segment of the Irish Catholic population that I think sets the bar really low. You know, get a civil service job, don't rock the boat. You know, I was like, well, fuck that. I want to be you know, I went, so when I got into college, when I got into NYU, I called my mother and said, mom, I got accepted to New York University. And she said, I'll give you six months. <laughs> like, Thank you, mom. That's great. So swear to God, four years later, I get into law school. I call her, I'm like, mom, I got accepted to law school. She goes, oh, Terrence, another one of your harebrained schemes. <laughs> uh, one of my writers uh, on Boardwalk gave me this. Harebrained schemes. <laughs> harebrained schemes. <laughs> But that, uh, that, that, that was the mentality. So if I had ever told my mother, I'm moving to Hollywood to be a writer, her head would have exploded. So anyway, I graduate, I, I, I get the law job. I have everything I want or so I think. And literally within two days, I'm realizing I have made a grave, grave mistake. This is not what I want to do. I don't care about insurance policies. I don't care how much they're paying me. I start literally sneaking out of work during the day to go to movies. I'm going into bookstores. Hey guys, this is my wife, Rachel, everybody. Hey, Rachel. Welcome back in. Matt, that's okay. <laughs> you guys have to be quiet. Um, so, you know, I, I'm now really slowly slipping into a, uh, a, a real funk. I mean, I'm, I'm really unhappy. I'm hitting my late twenties where is a very pivotal time for people, you know, with their life choices. And, uh, I am, I'm just, I know I'm never going to be great as an attorney. I don't care. I mean, I would be on the phone arguing with other attorneys or they'd be arguing with me about 
whether or not to pay an insurance policy. And I'd be like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> Just give the guy the money. <laughs> not my money. It's not your money. What are we fighting about? You know what I mean? Like, this is not what you want your lawyer to be. You want your lawyer to right. be. Like, like, and the funny thing is, like, if you want to argue about character development, I'll yeah. argue with you all day. But I don't care like the insurance thing or uh, it just it just was a huge mistake. So anyway, I a couple years in, I realize I have got to figure out what I want to do. And I wake up one morning and I say to myself, all right, forget the money, forget the student loans, which are now hovering at eighty thousand dollars and at a 10 percent interest rate, which at the time was considered great. Because the interest rate in the, in the 80s at one point was 20% a year. Oh. So I had a 10%, 80,000. So this money is fine. I said, all right, forget the money, forget the loans. What, forget the diploma, forget everything. When you wake up in the morning, what do you want to do? And I said, uh, oh, maybe, uh, maybe sales. You know, maybe be a salesman. So I'm a good bullshitter. And I like to talk to people. And there's a little voice that said, no, it's not sales. Come on. What is it? And I was like, you know what? Advertising. I could be a great ad guy, copywriter, you know, that's that. And then that little voice again, come on, what is it? And finally, the deep, dark secret. And I came out of the closet. I wanted to be a sitcom writer. And I said it out loud to myself. I want to write TV and movies. And once I said it to myself out loud, I was the other voice. I sound like a schizo. The other part of me was like, um, then, then fucking do it. Do it. And I was like, okay. So I call my family and friends and I say, okay, <laughs> new plan. I'm quitting my job. I'm selling everything I own. I'm moving to LA and I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a sitcom writer. And the reason I chose sitcom writers, not only, you know, big fan of sitcoms, but I, I didn't think I could possibly write a movie. A movie is two hours long. Uh, even a one hour show is huge, but a sitcom is 22 minutes. And I was like, I, I think I can get my hands around that. So that was really it. So I tell my friends and family, my best friend. So my best, one of my best friends called me, okay, let me, let me just get this straight. Let's recap. You grow up first person in your family to go to college. You go to NYU. Amazing. Graduate. You go to law school, pass the New York bar and the Connecticut bar sworn in. You're on partnership track at a major New York City law firm. You are going to quit that. You're gonna to move to LA. You've never been west of Chicago. You're gonna to go to LA and write scripts. You've never written a script before. What kind of fucking stupid plan is this? <laughs> I went, I know it sounds stupid. I get it. I totally hear you. I know I'm right. I know this is my destiny and I am going to go there and I'm going to make this happen. And they're like, all right, look, you know, we love you. You got our support. Good luck. But, you know, I, I think you're going to be back here in a year. And I said, I don't think so. So that's what I did. I showed up in L.A. In, on May 8th, 1991. So I'm coming up on my 30th anniversary here. Wow. Uh, it was like I parachuted into town from another place, which I basically did. And I hit the ground and it was exhilarating because for the first time, I knew exactly what I wanted and I really wanted it. And I, and it wasn't a false motivation. It wasn't, Oh, I want to be rich. It was a very specific goal that I really wanted. I knew I could be passionate about this. I could be excited about telling stories and movies. So all of the energy I felt as a fan now 
pushing it into, I'm going to create this stuff. I'm going to do this stuff. So I had to figure out the business. So, you know, I think what I had a good work ethic already. And I think what law school certainly did for me was to really give me a work ethic of, okay, how do I break this down? So right away, it's like, okay, again, it was like survivor. First thing I need is shelter. I got to share in an apartment with two other guys who were trying to be writers. I got out of a, a classified ad. Okay. I need a car. I got, I actually, I didn't have a car at, uh, for a couple of years, I took the bus in LA, which people, which is yeah, crazy. crazy. Yeah. People, you know, even my roommates like you took the bus. I was like, well, I don't have a car. How am I either walking or taking the bus? So I take, I had to get a job. So, uh, I was a lawyer. So I said, all right, well, I'll get a job. But what I wanted to do is I didn't want to get a law job. I wanted to get a job as like a paralegal, not as a lawyer, because I wanted to get a job that I could work nine to five. So I, I started applying as paralegal and I wasn't getting anything. So I was working with an agency. And I finally called the woman I was working with. I said, what's the problem? She said, well, you're overqualified. You're an attorney and you're looking for a paralegal job. I said, I know, but I'm just trying to get something to pay the bills so I can write it. She goes, no one's going to hire. She goes, well, look, had you been a paralegal in New York for the last five or six years, you'd get hired in a second. I said, really? He said, okay. I hung up. I called my friend who has his own law firm in New York. I said, listen, if anybody calls you, I've been a paralegal for you for six years. <laughs> no, I changed my resume. Suddenly the phone's ringing off the hook. I get a job at Unical, the big oil company downtown in LA. And I get a job in their litigation department as a paralegal. And they have no idea that I'm a lawyer. Um, so obviously it's on. They're like, this guy's really smart. He seems to know yeah. more than everybody else. Well, it's funny. Like once a month, my boss would say, you should really go to law school. <laughs> like, and I'd be like, I'm, not, you know, I'm not a good student. I don't know. So, uh, you know, obviously it's illegal to say you're a lawyer if you're not a lawyer, but I couldn't find any laws that said you can't not divulge that you're a lawyer. It's unethical. I'm sure the bar would not appreciate it, but I could never, because nobody does that. Why would you not say you're not a lawyer? But I did it. I didn't want anybody to know. So I would basically, you know, I just show up here and it was great. I worked from, I think, 8.15 to 4.30 and I was home by 5.15 in my apartment after taking the bus and I had my nights free to write. And I just started writing sitcom specs. So for the people in your audience who don't know, a spec script is basically a sample script that you write on the speculation that somebody might buy it. Basically what it is, is a portfolio of your work. If you were an artist, you would have a portfolio of the different drawings you do to show people what you can do. So to get a job on a sitcom, basically you, what you do is you write sample episodes of existing shows. So I wrote a Seinfeld episode. This is again, 1990, 91. Seinfeld, Frasier, Mad About You, Home Improvement, et cetera. So I, I was doing that. And you know, remember, I never written a script before. So I had to approach this like, okay, I need to learn how to do this. So it was like being a carpenter. Okay, I need to build a bookcase. How do I build a bookcase? So I go to the library, get books on how to build bookcases. I would get a bookcase, take a bookcase apart. Oh, there's there's nails here. There's a there's a brace here. I did that with TV shows. I would literally, I'm, I'm dating myself. Uh, I would videotape, like Home Improvement, for example. I videotape 10 episodes of Home Improvement. I'd watch scene one, I'd stop the tape, write down what happened. Scene two, write down what happened. Scene three. I'd make a reverse outline of the story. I did that for 10 episodes. And then I was like, I now have 10 blueprints of home improvement episodes. And I realized, oh, okay, there's a pattern. It starts out with a cold open. It's a joke. It has nothing to do with anything really with the story. They come back in. The first scene is the problem. The problem exacerbates by the first commercial break. It comes back after the commercial break. 
Tim Taylor is his character name, talks to his neighbor over the backyard fence, gets advice, then he uses that advice to solve the problem. Every episode follows that pattern. It's like, okay, that's how you do a home improvement episode. Boom, I wrote my home improvement episode. So now the people at home improvement, when they see that, they go, oh, this guy gets it. He gets our show. He knows how to write for home improvement. Well, obviously, Tim Taylor sounds very different than Fraser Crane on Fraser. That's a whole different type of humor. Older. So you have, I studied that. So I really applied my legal work ethic to, okay, I'm going to figure this out. So I had a portfolio of work, bunch of stuff. So now the problem in Hollywood, as you well know, uh, the catch 22 is you can't get a job without an agent and you can't get an agent without a job. And I was like, well, how the fuck does anybody ever do anything? And the answer is nobody knows. Nobody ever really knows. You know, I always said, like, you told me I want to be a dentist. How do I do that? I said, oh, great. Well, you got to go to college. You got to get a, a bachelor's in science. You have to take these science courses. Then you have to go to dental school. And then you have to take the dental boards and get certified. And then you work in a dental office as a, as, you know, whatever, an intern for a couple of years. And then you're a dentist. Great. How do I be an actor? Uh, well, you can go to acting school. You can just show up for an audition. <laughs> you can walk down the street. Someone finds you. Totally. Yeah. Say, hey, yeah, you should be an actor. Writer. You could you could study writing for 10 years or you could just start writing. You could just sit down with a writing script. There's no framework. There's no guarantee. There's no license you need. Anybody can do it. So it's it makes it, it's obviously very accessible, but it's also that much more challenging because there's no guarantee. So... I, you know, I was not shy. I, uh, this again, this is pre-internet. This is now before, this is early 90s. So there was a thing called the Hollywood Producers Guide and the Hollywood Agents Guide. So I bought them. And I literally start on page one. And uh, a Producers Guide, for example, page one, there was a company called Adam Productions. And there's a guy named Bob Myman, who's now a huge entertainment lawyer. He was partners with John Ritter from uh, Three's Company, the yeah. actor. Yeah. And for page one, so I call up Bob Myman. I said, hi, my name's Terry Winter. I'm a writer. I'm an ex-attorney. I'm out here trying to be a writer. I said, can I come and talk to you for five minutes and just pick your brain about the business? And he's like, yeah, sure. Okay. So I said, so you, you say, how about next Thursday at two o'clock? I said, great. So again, I didn't know anybody. So I was just cold calling people. And I figured, look, 50% of the time, they're going to say, what are you fucking crazy? The other 50% of the time, maybe they say, sure, I'll talk to you for five minutes. What do you want to know? I said, anything. I don't know anything about this business. So I show up at Bob Myman's office. I had to take the bus to Pico Boulevard, Fox, like three buses to get there. And I show up wearing a suit and tie. And I go in, it's like two o'clock on the Thursday. I walk in and he goes, you, you're the guy who wanted to be a writer, right? I said, yeah. He goes, all right, well, you never have to wear a suit again. This is like, what are you wearing? A suit? I said, oh, okay, great. This is, I didn't know that. That's, he goes, hey, you can wear whatever you want. That's why I'm in pajamas. So I said, perfect, great. So this is exactly the kind of shit I need to know. So he talked, so I would do this all over town. I just started meeting people and learning. And, and so I also did the th that with agents. I saw, I'd call, call an agent. If you were an agent, I'd say, hey, Matt, my name's Terry Winter. I'm a sitcom writer out here from New York trying to you know break in. I've got a couple of samples. Would you be interested in reading? You 90% of the time, what you'd hear, and this is part of your 10,000 no's, is no, we don't take unsolicited scripts. Blah, blah, blah. Every thousandth time I get somebody to go, eh, so, okay, yeah, sure, send me what you got. Send, call me in a week. Call back a week later. I need another week. I'm really busy. Great. Call back a week later. Who are you again? I said, well, we talked two weeks ago. Well, you know, I get 500 scripts a week, and it's just unbelievably frustrating. The few people who were reading my work were really positive and really encouraging, but they said, you know, you got to get an agent. 
He's like, yeah, no shit. I'm, I am trying every day to get an agent. So for me, you know, the, the great irony and the great frustration is like, I come so close. I get an agent, go, oh, I just signed another guy. But if I had seen you first, I would have signed you. And I was like, ah. And uh, you know, by this point, my roommate, uh, Chris Caldavino, who's on the oh, Sopranos podcast with you, yeah. Will Olivia. Chris is one of my two best friends in life. He had uh -huh. moved out to be an actor. We are now living together while I'm doing all this shit. And he's trying to be an actor. So we, um, I'm like, you know, one point I just had a near miss. I almost got hired on a show. Didn't work. I was literally like standing on the roof of our building, just looking out at the city. And he came up. He goes, I thought you were going to jump. <laughs> I, no, it's not. It's not that bad. I said, we're only on the third floor. I said, I, I, I would end up crippled for life. And that would be even worse. But no, I said, just, I was like, what the fuck do I have to do? And I, and I said, okay, I guess I'm not working hard enough. I mean, now, at this, point, at this point, yeah. Terry, how long are you out here at this point when you're on the rooftop and he comes up? How many, is it years? Is it's it about a year and a half, two okay. years. Okay, cool. It's, it, you know, it, look, in the grand scheme of this business is nothing. But in, in but you put your time in with all. Yeah, stuff. and I also feel like the clock is ticking. I'm 30 yeah. years old. Yeah. I, I had a moment. It's interesting. One morning, I, um, I was going to my job at Unicow at my paralegal job. And I'm wearing khaki pants and a shirt and tie. And I have a backpack and a Sony Walkman and I have a brown bag lunch and I'm going to the bus. Now this is a guy who was a, had a you know big office in Manhattan as an attorney. And now I'm a schmuck walking down the street and I turn the corner on Santa Monica Boulevard and my bus is there. And I start running down the street with my backpack and I'm you know, going in the Walkman and these three, high school kids are coming toward me. So you ever do that thing where you run into somebody and you're not sure which way to go. And then, so this kid is like in my way. So finally I just fucking barrel through the kid and push and get on the bus. And as I barrel through, I hear him and his friends laughing. And I realize he was fucking with me. He was like, oh, look at this guy running for the bus and was trying to block my way. So I got on the bus and I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm a fucking joke. I'm a joke to high school kids. I'm like, I, I'm an attorney, God damn it. I'm a lawyer. What the fuck? And I was like, it was the bleakest bus ride I ever had. And I was like, what am I doing? This is ridiculous. I got fucking kids making fun of me now. I'm like, I, you know, and then I finally I grabbed myself by the shirt. I said, snap the fuck out of it. You're out here to be a writer. You're going to make this work. Fuck that kid. I wish I could run into that kid now and punch him right in the face. <laughs> he's, he's, he's probably like 40 years old now. And if you're out there, kid, fuck, you got me good. I, I did not know, but it was great. So I would, I really, I like, I was, it was a, a moment of darkness for me. It was a dark bus ride of the soul where I was like, Oh, what am I, am I kidding myself? Is this ever going to happen? And for me, the irony was like everything else in my life that I ever wanted, I was able to figure out how to get. And here the irony was, this is the thing I really want and I can't get it. People, yeah, you And I said, I'm going to be that guy. People 20 years from now are going to go, remember that writer, that guy, Terry Winter, he's really talented, but never made it, never got a job. What happened to that guy? Oh, he went back to being a lawyer. And I was like, I, I can't let this happen. So I just kept plugging and plugging and plugging. So finally, I went down to the Writers Guild uh, and I was trying everything. Writers Guild is the union for writers, for people who don't know. And they happen to have a list of agents who would take unsolicited scripts. And what that means is if you were a writer and you send a script to William Morris or CAA uh, just today, say, hey, will you read my script? It will come back in the mail unopened. 
with a letter saying we don't accept unsolicited material. It has to come in through a recommendation or somebody else. So the Writers Guild has this list of agents who will take unsolicited scripts. Generally, it's new agents, young agents who are looking for clients. And this is just, this is no work of my own, just complete happenstance. On the list is a guy that sat next to me, four seats away from me during law school. Uh, I won't give his name, so I don't want people to call him, but his name is Doug. <laughs> so I'm like, holy shit, Doug's on this list. So I called Doug. I'm in LA. He's in Long Island in New York. I said, are you an agent now? What are you doing? He said, no, I'm a real estate lawyer, but I had a client who wrote a book on real estate and I used my fee to get bonded as an agent. I don't know anything about being an agent. I said, well, guess what? You're perfect. You're my agent. He goes, what do you mean? I go, I'm creating the Doug blank agency in Los Angeles. I'm going to get letterhead, a voicemail, uh, address at like, you know, uh, mailbox, et cetera. I'm, I'm going to photocopy all the scripts. I'm going to submit them. And if I get anything, I'll give you 10%, like a, like a regular agent. He's like, okay, great. So that's what I did. I, I photocopied all my stuff. I made letterhead, the Doug agency. Uh, I got a voicemail system. I took a day off from work at Unical and I threw a baseball hat on. And at the time, I think there was like 27 sitcoms on the air. And I hit every single one of them. I drive to the Warner Brothers lot. And this was back in the days you could do this. I said, yeah, I'm the messenger from the Doug agency. Uh, I need to drop off. So yeah, go ahead. And I go in and I just went to every office. And usually there'd be some young person behind the desk. And I go, yeah, he's, here's these scripts you want from the executive producer. It was always addressed to whoever the person in charge was. And they'd be like, okay. And so now, you know, after having done that to 27 shows, I was like, okay, I, my scripts are at least in the building where theoretically, if lightning strikes, they have come in from an agent. He is literally a bonded agent. And if they read my scripts and like it, at least I have now a legitimate shot. So hit 27 of these. So about a week and a half later on a Friday, I get a call from a woman named Winifred Hervey Stallworth. Hey, Doug, uh, it's Win Hervey from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. She's the executive producer of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Uh, yeah, I read Terry Winter's scripts. I think they're really good. I, uh, I think you might like to have them in to pitch some stories. So I'm like, holy shit. So it's four o'clock on Friday. I called Doug in New York immediately. He's gone for the weekend. And I'm like, oh, shit, I got to wait till Monday now for Doug. And then, then I realized, you know what? Doug doesn't know anything about being an agent. Why do I have to wait for him? I'll just call and say I'm Doug. <laughs> I'll just cut <laughs> the middle. And then I got to like, what did she say? Or what did you say? And I'm like, Let, so I call, I say, yeah. And I have no idea what agents say or do. I just, I'm winging it. I said, yeah, I, uh, Ms. Herbie, this is Doug, uh, you know, calling it. Oh, you know, she, Terry Winter is really talented. She, oh, he's amazing. Guy's incredible. She goes, Great well, looking guy. Great yeah, looking and, guy. Yeah, handsome. And guys, there's nothing this guy can't do. So, uh, she said, you know, Fresh Prince is kind of a teenage show. Does he have like one more script that's kind of like more teenage? Because I gave her a, I think she, I gave her everything I had. So I felt Frazier mad about you, maybe. I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, he just finished an amazing episode of The Wonder Years. That's just great. I said, but I don't have a copy of it. I won't be able to get it until, until Tuesday. Is that okay? I said, I think Terry's away for the weekend. She goes, uh, yeah, that's fine. So I hung up. And so from Friday night until Tuesday, I had to write a Wonder Years episode. And I'm like, okay, this is it. Now, again, this is, again, where the work ethic is like, you go, oh, that's, that's impossible. Or how I was like, I'm canceling everything from now until I get this done. So again, pre-internet, what you used to have to do, every show has a different script format. So 
So I wanted the mine to look like a really professional wonder year. So on Hollywood Boulevard, there used to be these people who had uh, tables where they would sell scripts, produce scripts for $5. So I went to the guy, I was like near Grandma's Chinese Theater. I was like, do you have a wonder year script? Yeah, so for five bucks, I bought a wonder year script to see the format, went home and I sat down and I was like, okay, what am I, what's the story, what's the story? And I, wrote, I did an episode where Kevin gets a tattoo, wants to get a tattoo. That was the storyline. And from Friday night until Tuesday, I wrote this script. I literally printed it out Tuesday afternoon, threw the baseball hat back on, drove over to the Fresh Prince office and threw it in. I say, I'm the messenger. I was at this point, I didn't want them to see me because I'm like the messenger, I'm the agent, I'm the writer, I'm everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I threw it in and I ran. And they called me up and they had me in to, to pitch stories. And uh, that was my first real foot in the door at a professional place. I ended up selling them on a story uh, it, it's funny, you know, foreshadowing my work. It was a story involving Will Smith getting into a fight with somebody in a restaurant. Uh, so violence was a big theme of my work even back then. Uh, and they ultimately, NBC ended up killing it. They were like, eh, we don't really want our lead fighting. And, but, but it was the first uh, foot in the door, as they said. In that meeting were two producers uh, who years later hired me on a different show uh, called Sister, Sister. At that point, when they hired me, they said, you have no idea how close you came to getting hired on Fresh Prince. You literally left that day and we said, we got to hire this guy. And we didn't, we checked and we didn't have enough money in the budget to bring on another writer, but you came this close to getting hired on Fresh Prince, like right out of the gate. And I said, thank God I didn't know that because I, then I would have jumped off the roof. <laughs> and they said, we got to hire, but we can't. Yeah. So uh, luckily, at, you know, Around that time, a couple months later, I got into a program that Warner Brothers runs and still runs called the Warner Brothers Sitcom Writers Workshop. What that is, is they take a, about 15 writers from around the country, around the world, I think, out of a pool of like 800 applicants. And they take those 15 writers and they put you through a 10-week program where you go once a week at night, you listen to a different showrunner talk about the business and, and structure of stories and dialogue, et cetera, during which time you write a script for them. And then at the end of the 10 weeks, the idea is that they try to place you on one of their shows. So it's a godsend. And for people out there who want to be writers, check it out. They think they do a drama workshop as well now. So at the end of the 10 weeks, they called me in and they said, you know, we have an interesting situation. We have a show we think you'd be great for it's not a sitcom and this is no reflection on your sitcom writing. Uh, it's a drama that has a lot of comedy in it though. I said, well, why, why me? They said, well, it's about a blue collar guy who's a lawyer who works for a really stuffy law firm. Do you think you could write that? I said, if I don't get this job, I am going to kill you. I said, that's my life story. Yeah, I think I can do it. So that became my actual first writing job. It was a show called The Great Defender. It starred Michael Rispoli, who went on to be on The Sopranos yeah. and played Jackie April. And uh, Peter Krause was the stuffy, you know, waspy lawyer he worked with. And uh, it um, was co-created by a guy named Frank Renzulli, who years later became one of the first writers on The Sopranos. So unfortunately, The Great Defender only ran like 12 episodes and was canceled. And I went off and did if you look at my resume, I mean, The New Adventures of Flipper, Xena Warrior Princess, Sister Sister, Soldier of Fortune, my, my standard for taking a job was very high. 
you had to ask me, do you want this job? And I'd yeah. say, yes, I do. I don't care what it is. I couldn't believe, and to some extent, still can't believe people are paying me to do this. That's it's, my that's my favorite thing when I, in an yeah. interview, someone says, what was it about the, the this you know project that you liked? And I'm like, they hired me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I really I, like I, that aspect of it. I truly feel like I haven't had a job, I have not had a job since 1993. Uh, I, I don't have a job. I get up in the morning and I do what I want to do, which is exactly what I do. That, and I happen to get paid for it, which is amazing. So um, as again, back then, I couldn't believe people were. So I wasn't even, I, you know, I, I wasn't trying to plot out a career like I won't take that show, I'll take this show. I was just, I couldn't believe how much money I was getting paid. And, and again, my job is to go to a, a TV show every day and write and come up with stories. Even if it's for a dolphin, it's still pretty great. Yeah. Although that was probably the hardest job I ever had. As I, I found out there were probably only 10 stories in the world that organically involve a dolphin. <laughs> and, and when you have an order for 24 episodes, when you get to yeah, episode like, 11, you're all looking at each other like, what the fuck do we yeah. do now? That was challenging. But um, anyway, uh, so, you know, I was going back and forth between uh, the cosmic mysteries and just crazy shows. And uh, finally, I was on a, a really good sitcom called The, the PJs. It was an animated show that Eddie Murphy did uh, for Fox, uh, where he was the uh, superintendent of a housing project. Really funny, created by Larry Wilmore and Steve Tompkins. Most of the rest of the writing staff were all the writers who went on to go on to The Simpsons. So just like funny, funny, like the A-team of comedy writers. So while I'm on that show, my agent at the time calls me up and goes, I'm going to send you a, a, a videotape of a pilot HBO is doing. Uh, watch it and call me. I go, what is it? He goes, it's called The Sopranos. <clears throat> and I said, I said, you know, I don't know anything about opera, right? He goes, just watch it and call me. I go, okay. I'm like, what the fuck? You know, I go home, I watch this thing. I literally, I'm not kidding, was, was trembling watching this. I knew, I was like, I know these guys. I know these people. I grew up with these people. Every one of the actors looked like people from my neighborhood. And I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I called my agent. I said, you got to get me on this show. He goes, yeah, I'm going to I said, no, no, listen to me. You have got to get me on this show. My second call was to Frank Rizzoli, the guy who co-created my first show I worked on, who was a very dear friend of mine. I called him up. I said, have you seen this thing, The Sopranos? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm actually meeting with this guy, David Chase, on Friday. I said, you got to get me in there with you. He said, absolutely, I'll do whatever I can. Turns out Frank was the last person David hired for season one, and then the doors closed. So I was shut out. I stayed on the PJs while Frank was writing the early episodes. What David didn't know, what he knows now, <clears throat> is Frank would come home every night. We'd talk on the phone. He'd tell me about the writer's room. I would pitch story suggestions. He would send me his scripts. I would edit. I was kind of writing on this browse anyway. Yeah. I'd suggest lines and stuff. And, you know, so slowly, as happens on a lot of shows, much of the first se season writing staff got fired early on. Frank survived and a writing team named Robin Green and Mitch Burgess stayed yeah, and they on for the length of the show. So when season two came along, David said to Frank, okay, who's this guy, Terry Winter? And, uh, uh, Francis Hill, he's a friend of mine, I'm told you can write a show. Okay, let me read something. <clears throat> so at the time, I had written my first feature script. It was a, a movie called Brooklyn Rules. That was a very autobiographical story about me and my two best friends. One of them is Chris Galavino in the movie. And it had a mob component. So I said, oh, this is perfect. David will read it, he'll see, I, I know this stuff. David reads it and he hates it. 
So Frank calls me up and goes, he hates your script. I go, are you kidding me? He goes, no, he totally doesn't get it. I said, oh my God, I just blew it. This is my shot. He goes, here's the deal. I told him, fuck this script. Don't worry about that script. I'm telling you, David, this guy can write the show. Just trust me. And David said, all right, if you're telling me he can do it, I will give him a shot. So Dave, I met David. We clicked immediately. We talked about stories and uh, I told him about that I had taken an acting class once when I first started writing. One of the things I had heard was it's, it's, it's good for writers to take acting classes to sort of understand, you know, walk, walk in those shoes, understand what you're asking an actor to do just a little bit. So I did it and I was terrible, but it was an interesting exercise. So we talked about, oh, wow, what about if Christopher took an acting class? So that became the first episode I ever wrote. It was called Big Girls Don't Cry. And it was a, basically an audition. And David called me and uh, I, I mean, I was, I, I, was, I, I was auditioning and then another writer named Todd Kessler was writing the script also. I know Todd, I know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. great guy, Rich, hugely talented writer. So Todd and I are both auditioning with two separate scripts. So I call Frank Rizzoli and I'm like, how's it, how's it going? How's, how's the other guy's script? And Frank says, it's, it's really good. I mean, your script is really good too, but and it never occurred to me that David could hire both of us. I thought it was either gonna be me or Todd. And I was like, oh, fuck. I was really hoping Todd would shit the bed, which he never does and, and didn't. So finally, I find that David's going to hire both of us. So David called me up and, uh, and said, hey, I, I really like your script. I'd like to offer you a job. Now, in the, in the hierarchy of um, titles, there it goes staff writer, story editor, executive story editor, co-producer. I was at the co-producer level at this point for several years because I was kind of getting punished because I was going back and forth between sitcoms and one hour dramas. So whenever I would go, I'd say, well, I want to move from co-producer to producer. They said, well, but you were on a sitcom and there's a drama. Right. So I kept getting these lateral moves and I was like, you know, I was at the co-producer level for several years. So David calls me up and goes, I'd like to offer you a job. And uh, I'm like, oh my God, I'm getting an offer to work on The Sopranos, the great. And season one had just aired and the show was just taking off like everybody was talking about it. And he said, yeah, I'd like to offer you a story editor, which is a step down, not only a lateral move, a step down. And I was like, uh, I, I don't know. He goes, what do you mean? You know, I said, I, I don't know if I can take that. I said, I, I think my voice went up like five octaves. I was like, Mr. Chase, I... <laughs> I would love to be on your show, but uh, I mean, I'm literally hearing myself turn down a fucking job on the Sopranos. I said, I don't think I can do it. I said, here's the deal. I said, I'm 30, whatever, 36 years old. Uh, I've been doing this for a while now. I've been at the co-producer level for a year, a couple of years to take a step back. I said, I honestly don't think I could look myself in the mirror in the morning and, uh, and live with myself. I said, I know I can write your show. I know I can do a great job. Uh, but I don't think I can take this. So he goes, huh? He goes, all right, let me, let me call you back. And he hangs up. I hang up. I put my head down on my desk. I was like, oh my God, I just fucking turned down a career changing, life changing opportunity. Called my agent. He goes, look, you got it. I can't even advise you here. You got to do this. You got to make up your own mind. The longest 15 minutes of my life, David calls back. He goes, okay, you co-producer. Uh, I said, oh my God, I said, thank you so much. I will, I will work my ass off for you. And it's funny, as it turns out, getting to know David, I mean, he totally understood where I was coming from psychologically. You know, I think that was like exactly the right thing to say to him that I just, I just, 
I, I know I'm worth more than this. And I had to, I had to do it. Otherwise I would, it would eat me up if I didn't fight for what I felt. So anyway, look, I mean, that, it just was a magic time. Like I said to you in the beginning, right, like right out of the gate. So from there, I had to walk into Larry Wilmore's office and, uh, and there, there had been a, a bunch of people leaving the show. So as soon as I knocked on Larry's door, you know, he was running the PJs. I said, Larry, I need to talk to you. And he just looked up and goes, you're not leaving. I said, okay. I said, I, I did get an offer somewhere else I really would like to take. He goes, well, you're under contract here. I said, I know. Just, he, he goes, well, I, too many people are leaving. And then he goes, well, what show is it? What show is it? I said, it's The Sopranos. He went, holy shit, really? I said, yeah. <laughs> he goes, all right, well, I'm not going to be the asshole who prevented Terry Winter from working on The Sopranos, so go ahead. He goes, but you got to get me videotapes the whole first season. I said, done. He said, this is like a two in the afternoon. He said, do you want to finish out the day? I said, not really. <laughs> yes. Okay. I went to the writer's room. I was like, so long, suck it. Was like, I just got to iron all the Sopranos. I said, but the good news is I'm coming back here in a week. I'm taking everybody to lunch and we're going to celebrate. And uh, that's what I did. I came back a week later. We all went out and then I moved to New York, uh, back to New York. Uh, and then I was bi-coastal for like the next seven years. I had an apartment in LA and an apartment in New York. And again, the Sopranos just got bigger and bigger and bigger and you know the rest is history and weren't you nominated were you nominated for an emmy for that first episode that you did uh it's not for a writer's guild a writer's guild yeah yeah, yeah. i mean it's you know, I, oh no i didn't win I, I i won the writer's guild award for pine barons years but i was nominated for a writer's guild award for that which was like incredible to me i mean i never even considered that even being a possibility i mean that was even like too much to even fantasize about yeah yeah, yeah, I mean, you, you know, and you, you're now Oscar nominated. You're, you're, you, I mean, you, you pretty much kind of run the gamut. And then I guess you know, it, I don't want to take too much of your time, so you let oh, me know please. where where we are with that. No, um, I'm good. Whatever. But I'm interested in like the, you know, the massive success of Sopranos, and then you go off and you do Boardwalk from there, right. which you created, and you collaborate with Scorsese, which has got to be surreal i would imagine i don't know if you had a relationship with him before that but now you've collaborated with him several yeah. times so like what yeah. what's you know that was my question funny like before we sat down i'm like i want to ask him about how the the mindset shifted from being the total outsider to now being really on on the very tippy top but it what's what's cool about it is like it's a it's a real it was a real climb it was a real like very incremental climb and you just did the work it yeah, sounds to I, me like you're just a workhorse and my talented. favorite quote or aphorism uh is there is no elevator to success you have to take the stairs and it's that says it all you if you don't put in the work I mean, hey, look, yeah, do people get successful by accident? Yeah, but you're not going to be one of those people. Trust me, <laughs> whoever you are, you're going to have to put in the work. And, you know, basically, and I've said this a million times too, you may be smarter than me, you may be slicker than me, you will never outwork me. I don't care who you are. I will do whatever it takes. Um, you know, it, it's the only way I know how to do it is to, to put the work in. And it's, it's, there's no shortcuts. You got to learn your craft. You've got to put the time in. Uh, it's like, you know, the Karate Kid or any other, you know, you know, analogy you can make. You, you, you just not born. You might be born with ability. Look, I think I was born 
I'm, I'm naturally funny, I think, but, you know, being naturally funny and then learning how to take that and craft a story is two different things, you know, and you've got to put the time in to learn how to do it. So, um, and, you know, and, and you can't let up either. I mean, I, you know, I, it's not like, uh, oh, I got my job now. I'm going to just coast to the rest of life. I'm always looking at, okay, what's next? How do I move from here to there? How do I, you know, constantly looking for opportunities, looking to collaborate with people. Uh, I, you know, I, you know, of the jobs I've had in my career, half of them have probably generated from my being the one to call my agent and say, hey, what about this? What about that? And, you know, and not to take anything away from my agents who are amazing, but, you know, who are constantly calling me with stuff. But I'm always looking for the next move or, hey, can you call me? Can you introduce me to this person? Can I get can you guys get me a meeting with that actor and just be proactive, you know, and, and keep it going. And that's really, you know, when, when people, you know, people say, what's the secret? I'll tell you the secret. There is no secret. That's the secret. Yeah. Work your ass off. That's the secret. What about what about do you ever feel like um, do you ever feel settled? Do you ever feel I know you're you're ambitious and so you're always looking forward. But do you ever are, have you you've had massive success? Do you ever just go like and, and 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 exhale and go, huh, this is pretty cool. I'm still going to work my ass off tomorrow. I'm going to still maybe work my ass off today. But do you ever just go like, OK, right now um, I'm settled or is there always this engine churning that, that just cannot. Stop? I have a very fleeting moments of that. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know that, and sometimes they happen by accident. Like I, I try not to be aware. I, I, and this sounds crazy, but like you know, occasionally because I've done a lot of stuff for HBO, like behind the scenes, and occasionally I get recognized. People go, "Oh, you're Terry Winter," and I, and I'm always like, "How the fuck do they know?" Who I am? And, and it's always surprises me that people are aware of who I am and what I've done. And then I, I go, "Oh yeah, I, I guess I did do all that stuff." I did. And they know my credits, you know, which is weird. Oh, you did this, you wrote this, you wrote that, you wrote on Sopranos, et cetera. And, and I find that that's kind of dangerous, you know, for me, because when I start resting on my laurels, uh, it, then it, it sort of takes your edge off, you know? And I, I go, at one point, I'm going to look back and go, holy shit, you did all of that stuff. And, and I, you know, hopefully 20 years from now, I'll, I'll sit down and I'll, I'll pour a glass of bourbon and reflect on how lucky and, and, and incredibly fruitful my career has been but I think to do that now you know again starts to dull the the edge where you go oh, you know I maybe I'll take the day off or I won't work as hard and you know I just I just there's too much else I want to do before I get to that point but I you know I do you know I do smell the roses you know uh occasionally yeah. uh, what yeah. about like what about the the actual uh structure of it because I know you have to be you know incredibly you know a self-starter you've got to be structured you've got to be you know crazy with your time management are yeah. you is it seven days a week is it five days a week is it what how do you is it mornings is it is it always the same is it different what, no, yeah it's different depending on you know if i have something you know showing production that's a totally different animal that's going to an office and working with a writing staff etc for the last couple of years you know largely due to covid and other stuff it's just been total on my own freelance working at home uh which is great you know like I, like you saw i'm in my pajamas still and i will remain in my pajamas probably for another hour um but um you know it, it's seven days a week but that doesn't it's that sounds a lot worse than it is again i don't 
I don't, I'm not working. This is not yeah, work. Yeah, you love it. I will do something work related every day, even if it's like reading a book for a project or, you know, looking at a script or reading an article or something. So every day I'm doing something. During the week, it's more, it's more structured. It's generally, you know, once we get the kids, you know, off and running to school, you know, by eight o'clock in the morning, uh, you know, I'm in my office, it's emails and stuff, and then working on whatever project I'm working on. And then that goes on all day. A lot of it is also new business development where I'm working on a current project, but then I'm always like, okay, what's coming down the pipe. And a lot of that is generating new, new jobs, you know, new, new projects. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, again, it's, um, it's, it's, I, you know, some writers say, oh, I write from eight in the morning till one, and then I take a walk and then I do the, it's not really that it's sort of like, you know, when I, when I need to. And then of course it's, you know, if I'm on a deadline, I can, I can go into total lockdown and just not do anything else except write for three days straight, you know, and just not, not deal with anything. Like literally won't return an email or call or, you know, my wife and kids know, just leave me alone. The only ones who don't get that message are the dogs. They don't care. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I can, uh, so yeah, it just depends on, uh, on, on what I need to do. But again, the, the blessing is if you it's not it. work, doesn't feel like, you know, an imposition. Yeah. Yeah. And what about the transition from going, you know, on Sopranos, for example, where David is really running the show and then all of a sudden you're boardwalk, it's your show. And then vinyl, it's your show. Was that transition something that you felt like by the time you were there, it didn't feel like much of a leap or did you all of a sudden go, Oh, I'm, it's more about delegating. It's more about everybody's looking to me. It's a different responsibility. Was that, good was that bad was it I, you know i i had the benefit of, of of sitting next to david for six seven years on the sopranos to watch it and then he very graciously over the course of those seven years delegated so much authority to me and by the time boardwalk came around i i was completely ready to do it i, I felt totally confident i knew exactly what i wanted to do and i modeled exactly the the boardwalk set after the soprano set even had tim van patten there with me you know it was a huge uh part of the show he was an executive producer and just sort of ran the production so i was i was free to run the writer's room and do liaise with every i can't believe i use that word liaise i've never used that word before <laughs> liaise with, uh, very very official uh i liaised with the various department heads uh, so yeah, I was very, very comfortable in that role. The challenge was, you know, now I'm actually also working with uh, an 8,000 pound gorilla named Mark Scorsese, who happened to be absolutely wonderful and uh, a friend and exactly what I prayed he would be. Scorsese truly is the reason I got into this business. So when I saw Taxi Driver in 1976, it was the first movie I ever saw that made me think about movies. I've been a huge fan of movies and go to movies with my friends all the time. I walked out of that movie and I was like, what the fuck was that? That was different. It was really bleak and it was really, you know, an anti-hero. I didn't know what to call it at that point, of course, but I went back and saw it like 15 times that summer. And I was like, who's this guy Scorsese and that actor? And then that was what got me interested in, really interested in movies and cinema. And, and who's Scorsese and what else has he done and what influenced him? And I start reading about this stuff. So that was real. So to flash forward, whatever it was, 30 years and get an HBO, when I finished The Sopranos, I went into them and it was Carolyn Strauss, who was the president at the time. Uh, we're thinking, all right, what am I going to do next after Sopranos? The idea was going to be create my own show. 
And she said, well, you know, we have this book called Boardwalk Empire. It's basically the history of Atlantic City. Uh, why don't you read it and see if you think there's a TV show in there? So I'm thinking to myself, how, what about the phone book? That sounds like it could be more interesting than the history of Atlantic City. And I was like, okay, great, I'll read it. And as I'm walking out, she goes, oh, by the way, Martin Scorsese's attached to that. And I stopped in my tracks, I turned around and I said, I don't even have to read it, I'm in. I said, I don't care what it is, I'll do it. If he's in, I'm in. She said, well, why don't you read it anyway? So, okay, great. I go home, there's a chapter about this guy, Nucky Johnson, who I fictionalized Nucky Thompson. It's all about the 1920s prohibition. Uh, she calls me up, great. Uh, you're going to have dinner at Martin Scorsese's house next Thursday in New York. I was like, holy fucking fuck. It's dinner's at 930. Um, and I remember hearing he's a night owl. So I thought that's kind of late for dinner, but whatever. So I was like a girl going to the prom. I mean, this is my fucking idol. I go, I buy a bottle of wine. I'm like, is it the right wine? I don't want to be too pretentious, too expensive. I'm like, you know, what do I wear? I got to his house. He lived on the Upper East Side. I got to his house like 20 minutes early. I'm like walking around the block. I don't want to be- You don't want to be too early. early. <laughs> right, right. It's like so douchey, but I'm like so nervous. So I finally ring the bell at nine o'clock and his wife, Helen answers. And she goes, oh, hi. And I have the bottle of wine and I come in and she brings me upstairs. And as we're walking upstairs, she says, Oh, Marty had had dental surgery. I said, oh, really? When? She goes, oh, this afternoon. I went, oh, shit. Well, that's not good. He comes out literally like with one of those cartoon rags around his head, like with, like with his jaw swollen. First thing he says to me, nice to meet you. I really can't talk and please don't make me laugh. I'm like, oh, my God, this fucking meeting is already in the toilet. I mean... I'm counting on making him laugh, right? So I have the bottle of wine for dinner. I'm invited to dinner. So I said, oh, well, I brought some wine. And he's like, oh, okay, great, thank you. And he takes the wine, he gives to his wife. And we sit down and we start chatting. And I'm realizing I don't smell any food cooking. And I'm realizing after about 10 minutes, it's no dinner. <laughs> this is not dinner. Carolyn Strauss told me it was fucking dinner. And I show up with a bottle of wine like an asshole. Like I bring wine to every meeting. Yeah. Like, oh my God, this guy must think I'm fucking nuts. So finally he does start laughing and we do start talking and it's fine. And I pitch him on Boardwalk Empire and I talk about the prohibition era. And he goes, wow, that's the one era in the gangster world that I haven't explored. I said, he goes, I always wanted to. And so he was in. So I left there and I was like, holy shit. So originally he was just supposed to be involved as a producer. So I went off, I wrote the pilot. I handed it in, I gave it to him, you know, a couple months later and he calls me up and he goes, you know, I, I know I'm supposed to produce this. He goes, I think I'd like to direct this. And I almost fell out of my chair. I was like, oh, okay. And he goes, how do we move this forward? I said, well, there's a guy at HBO named Richard Plepler who's in charge of everything. I said, if you call Richard and tell him what you just told me, I'm pretty sure this is gonna move forward. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, okay, I'll do that. Five minutes later, I get a text from Richard Plepler just all exclamation points. No, no words, nothing, just 50 exclamation points. Like, holy shit. Obviously, Marty just called him and said, I want to do this. And that was it. We were off to the races. So, you know, my first show running experience was being partnered with Marty, which was great and a blessing. And obviously, it was successful. We did Wolf of Wall Street. We did vinyl. I did a couple other things. I had things I'm developing with him. So, and again, like I said, he's exactly the guy I hoped he would be. Funny. Uh, kind, unbelievable, like a, you know, God, a God of cinema, uh, incredibly collaborative, all that stuff. And uh, it was great. It's just, yeah. just 
true. I've heard nothing but ama- Lorraine Bracco was on this show. She talked about him and the collaboration and oh, how, yeah. how empowering he is. I I've, I worked with John Bernthal. He told me some story from well, Wall Street where he yeah. you know threw a bottle of ketchup against the wall and and Marty he's like he's like yeah Marty just goes get another camera on that. I want to cover the ketchup hitting the wall. And he was like, holy <laughs> shit, I could just do whatever I want. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. He, he said he, it was literally like, just loves, whatever you want to do, bring it. Bring yeah. It's funny. Um, Peter Bogdanovich told me a quote from Orson Welles that I always uh, remember it. He said, Orson Welles said, a director is a person who presides over accidents. Uh, when you have an accident or an ad lib, sometimes that's where the gold is. And Marty knows that better than anybody. He'll, you know, if he's got the time in the film, he'll let it run because sometimes that's where the funniest stuff, some of the funniest stuff in Wolf of Wall, in Wolf of Wall Street, I didn't write. I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit that was Jonah and Leo riffing or Jonah and Matt, uh, or Leo and Matthew McConaughey. I mean, I, you know, I wrote the script, obviously, and it's all there, but some of the little asides are like, you know, I, I didn't I didn't do it. And that was just them. You know, so well, yeah. I don't know if people realize though, like the the, the improvs don't work if the structure's not yeah, there. Yeah, you know, exactly. Be cool and funny moments, but they don't really land if the structure's not there. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, you you giving yeah, and that's the thing. Yeah, you you giving the actor a very solid framework and a script to work on, and then within that framework, you know, otherwise the script would be seven hundred pages. But within that framework, you know who your character is. You know what the situation is. You know, just play in there and and marty is is so great at, at allowing actors to do that and again that's where you just get these nuggets of gold it's just, yeah. just great really yeah fun. well listen i i selfishly would want you to stay here for <laughs> three more hours we i would love to hear more of these stories but i, I do want to be respectful of your time um, thank you where where are you physically are you in so back I'm physically i'm physically in la oh you're really actually, probably right actually, yeah, I'm in, I'm in uh, the Palisades, but we're, oh, okay. we're heading back east. I, I'm working on a show back there, and we're we're headed back. We, Wait, we, what I, show? Uh, City on a Hill. Oh, that's so great. Oh, yeah. terrific. Oh, yeah. awesome. So oh, we've been, we, you know, it was like I was there during COVID. I was there away from my family for so long. Yeah, yeah. And I saw my parents and my wife's parents, and like, we have everybody back there. And we just right. said, hey, why don't we... It seems like the, everything's changed right now. It seems like yeah. it's doable. And so we're yeah. going to do it. Yeah. Great. Well, Joy, yeah. we're, we're getting back east over the summer. I can't wait. I've not been there for two years uh, in New York. We moved after vinyl. I, we moved back to L.A. in 2017. So we've only been to New York a couple of times since then. So uh, very much uh, looking forward to uh, to hitting New York and uh, going to some of my favorite restaurants. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I appreciate it, man. I, you know, I, Steve said to reach out and I'm like, huh. And you, it's funny, you and Kevin Bacon, both, it was like two minutes later, boom, there's a, there's a response like, yeah, I'll do it. I was like, really? All right, great. Let's do it. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. And uh, yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I, uh, I think, I think the more people understand, you know, what it takes and the the motivation you need and and hopefully to provide some of that motivation your dog uh, understands you do it. Yeah, he gets it. Uh, you know, it, it's, yeah, look, it's, it, it ain't easy. And, um, you know, just, just keep plugging away. Like I said, you know, work will, uh, will pay off. And one thing I did as a writer every day is a little trick I did with myself. Um, and I'll leave you with this. I, I would not go to bed at night until I did something I could say to myself, okay, what did you do today to make your writing career happen? 
And it was, I called an agent, I wrote a scene, I mailed the script, I did something. Because I knew if I did something that it was this much closer to, to making it happen. Because it's really easy to procrastinate and go, eh, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow. Because those tomorrows add up really quick where you go, a month will buy, I haven't done a thing. You know, when, when I moved out here, you know, Chris Calavino moved out with me and he, he totally got it too, the same work ethic and hustling, hustling, hustling. But we, we, the two of us are probably responsible for 10 more guys moving out from New York, all of whom decided, oh, I want to be an actor, I want to be a writer, and then showed up here. But a lot of those guys were like, hey, we're going to the Dodger game tonight. Uh, we're going to Vegas. And I would be, guys, I didn't come here to go to the fucking Dodger game. I came here to make, make my writing career happen. When I am writing on a show, I'll take you all to the Dodger game. We'll all go to Vegas. But until then, I am going to live like a monk and get this shit done. And, and slowly, you know, a lot of those people fell off because they didn't have the work ethic it took. You know, getting into this business, whether it's acting or writing or any part of it, I always make the analogy, speaking of the Dodgers, it's like saying, I want to play for the Dodgers. Okay, great. That's how good you have to be. If you can't hit a ball 300 feet, you ain't playing for the Dodgers. Uh, you know, if you can't, you know, hit a 90 mile an hour fastball, it's not going to happen. So until you figure out and train yourself to do that and work on a professional level, that's how few slots there are. And that's how good you have to be to do it. And you can do it. It's just going to take time. You got to work. And hopefully you're natural. You got a natural fastball. You got a natural strength to build on, but you're going to have to build on it. None, none of those guys showed up by accident. They played, you know, what is it? Uh, Mal Malcolm Gladwell says 10,000 hours yeah. to become an expert at something. 10,000 hours, 10,000 those. That's, that's where I got the, yeah, the homage to that. I yeah. realized I was so starstruck with you that I didn't even give you my final three questions I give everybody. But at this Go point, ahead. We, I mean, you kind of, yeah, I'll give him, you can give quick answers. All the, right. word, the word no means what to you? Nothing. Boom. Uh, I mean, nothing in the sense that I, no it means doesn't bother maybe, you. Yeah. No means maybe unless it's a girl and then no means no and absolutely no. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, any, any kind of like saying or, or mantra or something when everything goes sideways, something to get you through like a life philosophy. Uh, I just say, I mean, I, I my mantra on boardwalk, not exactly, a, 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 a on point with this, but whenever things were bleak and people would be like, Oh my God, what are we going to do? I used to go, guys, it's going to be great. Relax. It's going to be great. And you know, basically what I follow that up with, because we're not leaving here until it is great. So don't worry, it yeah. will be great. And yeah, yeah, we'll figure it out. No, yeah. And, and then uh, last thing is, uh, if you could give your younger self advice, what would the advice be and what age would you intervene? Uh, right around 15, uh, when I was starting to get it, uh, my advice would be uh, just be courageous. Follow, follow your dreams as crazy as you think they are. As, as un, uh, unattainable as you think you are, trust yourself and, and, and be courageous. Um, you can do so much more than you think you can do. And that, and that goes, you're stronger than you think you are, you're smarter than you think you are, you can withstand way more than you think you are, that, than you can, and, uh, and just, just believe in yourself more. I wish I fully committed, uh, you know, I, I think I was going on 60% throttle for, till, till I hit LA, you know, and, and I got a ton done. I graduated from law school and passed the bar, but that was, that was 60% effort, you know? And then when I really found the thing I wanted and I put, brought it up to a hundred, I was like, Oh, okay. If I wish I had that hundred percent back, back then.
So. That that's awesome, and I, hats off to you, Terry. You've done so much, and oh, and, and to hear the way you've done it, really, you know, just grit, grit. It's like it's crazy work ethic. It's awesome. It's Thank inspiring. You. Thank you. Thank you for doing this for for being here with me, and uh, hopefully we'll get to that's absolutely my pleasure. Each other yeah. in person at some point. You know? That would be fantastic. When you get back to LA, hit me up. Hopefully uh, I'll get my second vaccination by then and we can uh, have coffee or breakfast or something. Perfect. Would love that. Right. Thank you, Terry. Appreciate well, it. Uh, take okay. Care. You too. Bye. All right, guys, that is it. Did I overhype it? I hope I didn't overhype it for you. Uh, for me, this conversation is just unbelievable. And um, that's why I, I couldn't contain my excitement in the intro. Uh, Terrence Winter, what a great guy. I'm so appreciative that he came on the show, that he he brought such vulnerability and openness about his story so that we could all benefit from it. Uh, it's just really, really so cool and so appreciative. And I'm, I'm pinching myself that I know people like this. Um, for any of you actors out there, uh, this episode has uh, come out in January, so if you're listening to it right after the release, just reminding you, we are doing another Let's Shoot the Rehearsal weekend intensive on-camera retreat in New York City, February 17th and 18th. By the time you're seeing this, it's possible that it's sold out, uh, but e email us at info at 10,000nos.com if you want details because there may be some slots open. We've kind of expanded it from the past ones we've done. This is our fourth version of this. So we've expanded it a bit um, and, and kind of gotten smarter and more efficient so that we could we could provide for more attendees because people dug it so much. So uh, definitely hit us up. If, if it doesn't work out, if you email us by the time you see this and it's already sold out, you'll just be in the queue for the next one we do because we will be doing these probably every couple of months. So even if you're listening to this or watching this, you know, a year from now, email us info at 10,000nos.com and just say weekend intensive or let's shoot the rehearsal in the subject line. And then we'll start a dialogue and that way we'll get you on our mailing list. And trust me, we don't like, you know, flood your inbox. But um, if you do that, you can just kind of be, you know, in, in the know of what we have coming down the pipe. Uh, you might want to do that if you're in the New York City area or even for these weekends, if you're out of the area or out of the country. We've had people come in from Vancouver and Toronto and all over the West Coast. We partnered up with a, a hotel partner, the HGU, so they do discount codes so that we can um, have people come in and get a real New York experience. So uh, check that out. Again, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching the show, listening to the show. If you dug it, go to Apple podcasts leave us a great review um, tell your friends about it put it on social media all that stuff and if you're not following me already on instagram i am at maddie dell and also at 10,000 knows one zero 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 nos um, is the one for the podcast all right we will see you next week